Open that up to Luke chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 14. When you get to Luke chapter 2, verse 1, say, let us adore him. All right. Upon the conclusion of the reading of the text, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you respond with thanks be to God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hopefully you have your Bible in front of you. And as we continue in our sermon series that we've been through Advent, and what we've been doing is looking at the Gospel of Luke And there in the Gospel of Luke, we are noticing that surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ, there is music. And people are singing songs about the good news that the Messiah, the Savior, has come. And we've said if there's anything that marks the holiday season, one of the great trademarks is Christmas music, which some of us have sort of a love-hate relationship with. I think when you're shopping for Halloween stuff and you hear Christmas music, I don't know if there's a law against that or not yet. But so what we've been doing is looking through that. And today, we are looking at the angels as they sing at Jesus' birth. And man, in our text, there's a lot there today, and and quite frankly, too much for us to cover in the short period of time. Uh, You know, sort of like, there's a lot there, like God being born, you know, just some stuff like that, and some things. And so, but what's exciting is the message that the angels have in their song. And maybe as a way of introduction, this will be helpful, as 2017 comes to a close, And 2018, can you believe it? We're not in a movie. Like, that's real. 2018, like, it sounds like a science fiction movie almost. But one of the things that marks the beginning of a new year for us here in the States is the Super Bowl, is football. That's one of the things that happens in February as the beginning of the new year. And it is slated that a man will most definitely make appearance in the Super Bowl who's been there a lot over the recent years. And it is this man, Tom Brady. And we have a love-hate relationship with Tom Brady. I'm a Cowboys fan. I don't like Tom because he's taken out more Cowboys than Marlboro cigarettes. You know what I mean? And my Cowboys only have a one in a hundred shot of making it in the Super Bowl. So if you can find time to pray for them, that'd be great. But the funny thing about Tom Brady, he was a sixth round draft pick and he was actually number 199. Um, And so he wasn't number one or anything like that. But Tom Brady is only one of two men 
to win five Super Bowls, slated to win six this year. He's the 15th highest paid athlete in the world. He's married to a supermodel, and in 2016, he made $44 million. Right? Tough life, bro. Tough life, you know? What's interesting is in when he was 27 years old, he did an interview with 60 Minutes. It was sort of right at the rise. He had won his third Super Bowl. And in the interview there, um, the interviewer asked a great question. And Tom Brady responded in a very interesting way. The interviewer asked this, The whole experience, this whole upward trajectory, what have you learned about yourself? What kind of effect does this have on a person, especially someone this young? Tom Brady responded this way. Well, I put an incredible amount of pressure on me. When you feel like you're ultimately responsible for everyone and everything, even though you don't have any control over it, you still blame yourself when things don't go right. I mean, that's a lot of pressure. And a lot of times I think I get very frustrated and introverted. And there's times when I'm not the person I want to be. And then he said these words, don't miss it. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, uh, this is it. You've made it. You've reached your goal, your dream. But I keep thinking, God, there's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be everything that it's cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. Why do I still feel like there's more out there for me? And the interviewer asked, well, what's the answer? He said, I wish I knew. I mean, I think that's part of me trying to go out and experience other things. I love playing football. I love being a quarterback for this team. But at times, there is a part of me that wonders what is still out there for me. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, tough life, Tom Brady, right? Maybe if you had more air in them footballs, life would be a little tougher, you know? (laughs) Supermodel, Ferrari, millions of dollars, wow. And, And we see this all the time with celebrities, right? We see people who achieve what seems to be the unachievable, but there's a void that's there, whether and then troubled minds and troubled lives in light of that. And this is not new. We see this all the time. But what we do is we detach ourselves from their experience. And we think, well, I would be different if I had that. And in all actuality, we actually share in common a lot more with a guy like Tom Brady than what you think. Sure, Tom Brady has the world, literally, but still wonders, there's still more out there for me. And we're the same way. When, when the kids get grown, when the kids get grown, that when we get them out of the house, then we're going to enter into that season. And then when we get the house or then when I get married and then we get the job and then we do the and the achieve and what I can produce and how I perform. And it's this upward trajectory and pressure in our life that we consistently feel. And what I believe that the angels sing in our passage today is literally the key to the void that we see in humanity. We see the angels literally step out of heaven and burst into song to the news that Jesus Christ has come. And there's two effects that take place, and this is the one nail that I'm going to hammer over and over and over in the sermon. The sermon has one point which doesn't mean it's going to be short by any means at all, okay? 
You might not like what I say, but you're not going to leave asking what did he say. The big idea is this. The birth of Jesus brings glory to God and peace to mankind. The birth of Jesus Christ brings glory to God and peace to mankind. And I believe that in that phrase, we will find the answer to what we're talking about and kind of peek behind the curtain and look at the deep impact and significance of what this season of Advent really means. So the first thing is, is that the birth of Jesus Christ brings glory to God. Do you see it? We see it two times in the passage. Verse 9 says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And then the verse 13 says, A multitude of angels appears and says, Glory to God in the highest. You know what's interesting? The word multitude there in the passage is actually a Greek term used for military soldiers. Literally a fleet of military soldiers. Too many to count. Could you imagine experiencing that and seeing that take place? But the first words out of their mouth. I mean, God in the flesh. Very God from God. Very light from light. Thousands of years of promises are coming true in this birth. And the first thing that the angels say, because they cannot contain themselves, is glory to God. Now, I think oftentimes in church, maybe you didn't grow up in church, but I think sometimes Christians use sort of Christian churchy language, and we don't really know what it means. Like the word glory. That's a big word. It's not one you use every day, right? You don't go through the line at Taco Bell and go, glory to God, right? No one's ever done that, by the way, through the line at Taco Bell. But glory, what does this word mean? And the word glory finds its root in the Hebrew language, which actually means weight, weightiness, the weightiness of God, the glory of God. Now, this is something I need to teach you. It's theology in light of this. But listen, what wetness is to water, what heat is to fire, is what the glory of God is. First John, John chapter 1 tells us no one has seen God. First Timothy chapter 1 tells us that God dwells in inapproachable light. We don't see God, but what emanates from God is his glory, is his goodness. And if I could put the cookies on the bottom shelf, it's this. The glory of God is God going public with his beauty. That's what the glory of God is. The glory of God is when God goes public with his beauty. That's why the glory of God is surrounding the angels. The angels are in the presence of God. The unfiltered glory of God in heaven. So when they step out of heaven and come to earth, what radiates off of them is the very glory of God. And the scriptures teach us that we see evidences of the glory of God in a number of places. But one of the most profound And one of the most simple, but yet profound, is his creation. Psalm chapter 19, verse 1 says these words, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Pastor John Piper, who uh, is a theologian and pastor who's had a great impact upon my life, the theme of his ministry is literally the glory of God. And what he comments on this verse, he says this, The heavens are telling the glory of God. 
What does that mean? It means that he is shouting at us. He shouts with clouds. He shouts with blue expanse. He shouts with gold on the horizon. He shouts with galaxies and stars. He is shouting. And he is shouting, I am glorious. Open up your eyes and behold my beauty. That's beautiful, isn't it? That's why when you stand at the base of the Rocky Mountains, or if you've been to Niagara Falls, or you look at a sunset on a country road, or you hear the wind blow through those pine trees, or you see those leaves change color, for just a moment, just a moment, it seems that life pauses and you feel small because you are beholding the very glory of God. Now, I could do something here. And I would do you a great disservice. I could get all fluffy with the glory of God, right? And it could be all sunshine and rainbows and fairies and all that type of stuff. Talk about the ferocious, wild love of glory of God and all that type of stuff, right? But for you to really appreciate it and for you to understand the weightiness of it, our text won't allow us to do that. Because what's the response of the shepherds? Look in verse 9, And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of God shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, what are the two words that the angel says to them? You got your Bible, you looking at it, what does he say? Fear not. Now, wait a minute. Glory of God, God going public with his beauty. Why is the response, hit the deck, right? This is not good. And the angel has to reassure them, no, 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 fear not. Fear not, because the reality is is that we have a problem with God's glory. We have a big problem with God's glory. And maybe you'll understand this verse in a new light, and it's one that you've grown up in church with, but not really fully understanding the weight of it. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of what? What have we fallen short of? The glory of God, His beauty. His standard, his holiness, what radiates off of him. Because you see, we cannot be in the very presence of God because God is perfect and his glory would literally overpower us. In Exodus chapter 33, long before third day had the song, Moses asks, show me your glory to God. And God says, no man can look upon my glory and live. So I will put you in this rock, and only a little bit of me will pass by. So Moses kind of had the first face time with God, right? And Moses comes down off the mountain, and his face glowed for months and months, and people couldn't directly look at him. And that was just because God passed by for a moment. But where did the problem come from? You see, it goes all the way back to the story, to the very beginning of the story. We see God showing out in creation. And he speaks, and there it is. And he speaks galaxies into existence. Pastor Louis Giglio says, God made the universe so big and you so small to let you know something about him and you. (laughs) That's good. 
And we see in Genesis this beautiful God in triune nature, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And there's this relationship, and there's this dance, like Pastor Tim Keller says, and that literally their love for one another spills out onto the canvas of creation. And we see God making everything, but in the height of his creation, he makes man and woman in his image and his likeness. You see, oftentimes we speak about the original sin of man. Yes, that's true. But have you ever wondered about the original glory of man. That's why Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says God has placed eternity in the heart of every man. Why would someone like Tom Brady at 27 have three Super Bowl rings, a Ferrari, a a Super Bowl model, and bags of cash and go, is this it? I believe the argument is glory because we were made for something else. But then Genesis chapter 3 opens up and we see there's a temptation that comes to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And the temptation is really this in Genesis 3. The enemy comes and says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of, it, of this tree, your eyes will be opened, and here's the phrase, and you will be like God. You'll be like him. You see, the fundamental problem with humanity is not worship. We all worship The fundamental problem with humanity is we do not worship God because we would rather be him. That's why false religions come in and creep in and say, you don't need to know about repentance and confession and change and submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You can just add God to your life because what feels good is good and you need to do it. But listen, I look at the world and they're constantly shouting, follow your heart and do what feels good, but no one is satisfied and everything is broken. Everything is broken. Which lets me know maybe there's another way. Maybe there is another way in which that we should live our lives. Because we were created for something. And what we did back in Genesis chapter 3 has carried on. And that is sin. And here's a definition of sin. Sin is the attempt to steal God's glory. Plain and simple. That's why your affections and your emotions and your time, your talent, your treasure. See, oftentimes we think of sin, we think like murder and like bad stuff. Yes, that is true. But sin is also fulfilling legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. Which is why our affections, our time, our talent, and our treasure, which are supposed to be given to God because he is worthy of that. His glory is worthy. We give that to something else. And the weightiness of that we have to understand. R.C. Sproul says it this way. He is the chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary. And he says this. Listen to this sentence. Sin is cosmic treason. Teach that to your kids. That's awesome. Okay? Real positive here at Westside. Sin is cosmic treason. The slightest sin that a creature commits against his creator does violence to the creator's holiness, his glory, and his righteousness. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us, and such is an act of treason against the cosmic king himself. Listen, for you to understand and to peek back behind the curtain and to understand why angels, why angels step out of heaven onto earth and sing glory to God in the highest, a Savior is born today. 
A Savior is born in the city of David, and you will find him wrapped in swaddling clothes. Why? Why is that such a big deal? Because God is now bridging the gap between you and him. And do you know what this tells us? Why the angels explode in this? First Peter tells us that the angels long and are mystified at the fact of salvation. Did you know that? Did you know that angels look at people who have salvation and Jesus Christ and have eternal life and are mesmerized by that? That's how glorious this news is. And the greatest Christmas verse, the greatest Christmas verse comes down to Jesus. It's what the angels are singing about. In John chapter 1 verse 14 it says, And the word God himself became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Listen, that's why constantly at Westside, no matter what the sermon is about, faith, family, finances, sex, whatever, it doesn't matter because it's always going to come back to Jesus Christ because we never have to ask the question, man, I wonder what God's like. I wonder what God's like because we look at Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And then this week when I was studying, I ran across 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and just lost my mind in in the office when I was chasing this word glory through Scripture. Paul has the audacity to say this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God is best seen in the person of Jesus Christ. We beheld his glory. The only glory is of the only son from the father. First John opens up and says we have touched. We have heard. We have seen the promise of God come true. First Corinthians says all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So when we see Jesus in John chapter 8 come to the woman caught in sexual sin, we don't have to ask how God treats people like that because Jesus teaches her repentance and then says, go and sin no more. I do not condemn you. And then when we see Jesus touch the leper who is the untouchable and who is the outcast of society and the margin of all people and far away from God and he touches them, we know that God approaches unclean people like that. Do you see this is why Everything is constantly about Jesus. If you take Jesus out of Christianity, it is a damnable religion. Do not make him a good moral teacher. Don't add him as an accessory to your life. Don't just jot down Bible verses that make you feel good. Because if Christ did not purchase it and accomplish it, then it is all vain for us. And that's why, literally, did you know there are only three occasions in Scripture that we have angels singing? Three, Job chapter 39 says the angels sang at creation. That was probably pretty cool to see, right? Bust out a song on that one. Saturn, whoa, right? That was incredible, right? Then Luke 15 teaches us that when salvation happens and someone far from God confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and comes home, that the angels throw a party in heaven. And then at the incarnation, when God steps out of heaven And becomes a human being. Listen, you cannot make this argument with God. You can never say to God, you don't know what it's like. 
God, you don't know what it's like to be betrayed by someone. Jesus does. God, you don't know what it's like to be an outcast of society. Uh, Jesus was murdered. God, you don't know what it's like to come from a broken family. Jesus' family called him insane. And it's all found here. It's what the angels sing about glory. God going public with his beauty. And he has put it on display in the person of Jesus Christ. And then here's what's even crazier. This just came to me. This is free. This is not even in your notes. But this continues on at the glory of the local church. Yes, you. You're an idiot. And God shows us his glory in you. How mean you are, how ignorant you are, how unforgiving you are. God shows the glory of God in the local church. That's why it's not optional. Yeah, you can stay at home, you can do all that and do all that, but you cannot say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a part of a local church. It's nowhere in the New Testament. The Lone Ranger even had Tonto, bro. Okay, you need the local church, man. And Paul says he used the weak in the world to shame the strong. The glory of God. That's what the birth of Christ brings. But then there's a result. There's a horizontal result for us. The birth of Jesus Christ brings peace to mankind. Peace. The angel says, fear not. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. So I see in this text a first vertical and then a horizontal. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. You know what's interesting about this? You cannot make... The nativity, birth, fairy tale. Now, you may not be a Christian or you may be peeking over the fence at Christianity, but one of the things that you can't do, it's just poor scholarship, and any scholar worth their salt would agree with this. This doesn't read like a fairy tale. Why? Because we have real names and real places. Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, a decree. And through history, we know that Caesar Augustus took a decree. So, so there's real anchor in this text. It's not fake, Because we know that this lines up with history. But Caesar Augustus is this man. We actually get the name for the month of August from him. You would be pretty hard-pressed to look upon history and find anyone more powerful than Caesar Augustus. But Luke is doing a bit of political propaganda here, if you will. You see, Jesus Christ is born in a Roman-occupied region. And he is born in the time of what's known as Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. The Roman Empire, it looked like this, expanded to 70 million people. It was the most powerful empire on the face of the earth, and Caesar ruled it with an iron fist. Trade skyrocketed. And did you know that Caesar declared himself to be a, quote, son of God? Interesting. And then he would also, when he won a battle, would send a messenger known as an evangelist to the town, and they would herald what was known as an evangelium, a good news or a gospel that Caesar had won. Interesting, right? The Bible didn't just drop out of the sky. It was written by real people in real time. And during this trade, Caesar put these type of coins in circulation. And on this coin, it, rings, it, it says, Paxa Augustus. The peace of Augustus. What's, why is Luke telling us this? Why is this important? Because Luke is comparing and contrasting. And he's telling us this. At the height of the Roman Empire, where there was true peace, that peace cannot satisfy the longing of the human heart. 
that there is a greater peace. And it also reminds me of this. There were hardly any wars during this time under the Roman rule of uh, Augustus. So it tells me this. Peace is not the absence of war, but rather the presence of something amidst the war. And the angels sing now, there is peace on earth with whom he is pleased. So what is this peace? What's the significance of this? And again, I'm going to lean in on Pastor John Piper, but he says this first and foremost, peace with God. That's the first thing we get. Peace with God. Everything flows from there. Paul says this in the book of Romans, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. The word justified, that's not Justin Timberlake's album, right? This is a legal term. This is made right with God. Through faith, we have peace with God. How was that accomplished? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, listen to me. Everybody wants the peace of God. We want the benefits of the relationship. But in order for you to get the benefits of the relationship, you have to be made right with the person in the relationship, just like your marriage. Men, listen up. You want the benefits of your marriage? You can't have a peace with your wife until you get peace with your wife. Correct? Right? Moving on in the sermon. Correct? We're understanding what I'm saying here. So you cannot say, oh, yeah, I just, God, get peace of God. Let me get the peace of God. Let me get the peace of God. The question is this, do you have peace with God? You say, what do you mean peace with God? Which tells me this. If the angels say that there's peace on earth with God and man, what's the antithesis of that statement? It means that there was war. You see, Here's, here's how subtle we are with our sin. We don't even name it properly, right? We say things now like, well, it was just an emotional affair. No, nah, adultery. Next. Well, it's not like, I just look at some stuff. No, nope, that's porn. Next. I mean, I just, it's not an addiction. I just, you're an alcoholic. Next. And see, what we say is, well, I'm, I'm indifferent towards God. Just indifferent. I'm just, you know, I don't really believe in him. I'm just indifferent towards this, towards that. Paul wouldn't give you that option. Paul says someone apart from Christ in Romans chapter 5 is this, Romans 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to his law. Indeed, it cannot. Are you understanding the gravity now of Christmas? That in a baby, in a manger, God steps out of the glorious scene of heaven and comes to the brokenness of earth. And that is now the bridge between God and mankind. And I firmly believe that everything that goes haywire in the world is because of the brokenness of the human heart. It all flows from that brokenness. And the first thing the angels sing is now creation has been reconciled. That there, there, there is now peace with God. Did you know that? With whom he is pleased. See, some of you thought God saved you, but he just didn't like you. That's not true. God is pleased with you. Which means that if you have peace with God, the natural result is this. That you can have peace with yourself. Which is interesting, when I counsel and speak with people, tends to be a thing that's more unbelievable than the love of God itself. People can believe that God forgives them in an ethereal concept, but they cannot forgive themselves. 
I'm going to press in on that a little bit because you're not saying this, but you are saying this. And when you say, God, I know what you accomplished. I know what all of your promises say. I know what the good news says. I know that an innumerable amount of angels said, glory to God and peace on earth. I know all of that, but I just can't forgive myself. What you are saying is, Jesus, what you did on the cross is not enough. So what I have to do is punish myself and punish everyone around me. Because when people start to come into my life and begin to love me and show affection for me, I don't feel that I'm worthy for that. So I'm going to sabotage the relationship and completely push people outside. That's why I'm never really fully going to join the church. That's why I'm never really fully going to love a community. Because I have to pay for what you did not accomplish. And listen to me, that is blaspheme. Because Jesus, when he died on the cross, did not say that's good enough. That's enough. That'll do. But he said it is finished. Listen, there is no plan B when it comes to salvation from God. It was all accomplished in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what I am telling you today upon the authority of God's word and in the power of the Holy Spirit is that you can have peace with yourself that you can actually know that you are forgiven. But it first comes with peace with God, and then peace with ourself, and then naturally it flows out to peace with others. Because what do the shepherds do? They leave, and they go tell other people. And if there's anything I've known about being a pastor and being in student ministry, is that this time of year and all of the lights cause great conflict. That's why we have the phrase blue Christmas. Because someone's not going to be around the tree or at the table this year who was there last year. Or someone's going to be around the tree or at the table this year that you've had an ongoing conflict with who has hurt you and wounded you deeply. And you're just supposed to smile and get on with it. And listen to me, I'm telling you that when you have peace with God and understand that the peace of God flows to peace with yourself, that you can offer to people what you don't have. And that is peace. That is peace. And if there's been a verse that has been etched and sketched on my heart that I've been sharing with you constantly through 2017 is Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, as much as depends on you, live peacefully with all. Because do you know what's so profound about this? It is very hard to cast judgment upon other people when you understood what it took to save your soul. It was so interesting. This past week, I had a family member graduate from nursing school. And it was so cool to hear the history of the nursing program and to see what they do and all the time and the labor that these guys and girls go into to be nurses. And it's profound. But one of the pledges that they make is to be there when people have a need. You make that pledge as a nurse. If someone needs medical attention, you will give it to them. You make that honor and that pledge. And when I was sitting in there, I thought, man, that's exactly the pledge that Christ made to us. Jesus didn't pledge himself to you out of your strengths. Jesus pledged himself to you out of your weakness and your brokenness. That Jesus promised to come to you in your darkest hour when all hell was breaking loose and the world was literally caving in around you and the guilt and the shame and everything was being cast upon you. Jesus steps into the picture, absorbs that blow, and from that you can offer a peace to people that they have no idea about. 
Do you see that what the birth of Christ brings, it brings glory to God. Glory that is of the highest. Glory to God in the highest. And peace on earth to whom he is pleased. As the band comes up and leads us in the time of response, we always respond in communion here. And it's so interesting that when we take that bread that represents the body of Christ and he was broken for us. And that true peace actually came through one of the greatest conflicts in the world. As Tim Keller says, the gospel is twofold and it is this. Please listen to me. The gospel is this. You are actually much worse than what you thought. No one lies to you more than you do. But at the same time, you are more loved than you dared imagine. In the person of Jesus. And this baby in this manger grows up and is sinless. He is without sin. Hebrews teaches us and he teaches about the kingdom of God. And through his miracles, we peek behind the curtain and we see God's glory. And then his body is broken and it is brutalized. And his blood is shed that fills this cup today. And it was blood that purchased you and me. And I just feel an urging in my spirit that if you do not have the peace of God today, if you cannot rest assured that God is satisfied in you because of the person of Jesus Christ, I would love to speak with you today as other people come forward and respond in communion. I'm going to end the sermon with these words. John Calvin, one of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation, in 1562, preached these words to his congregation about these very words, glory to God in the highest. And he says these words, the angels sing peace on earth. Why peace? Because as they go on to add, God has shown his goodwill to men. Peace is a wicked illusion unless it flows from the reconciliation and accord that God has made with us. For instead of treating us as we deserve, as enemies, instead of judging us for our disobedience and iniquity, which provoke his wrath, God proves to be a father and savior to us and longs even to rejoice in us so that we might rejoice in him. Since all that is ours, we may indeed know real peace and rest. Our happiness is firmly founded on God's good will. In his fatherly love, he has mercy on us instead of blotting us out of his creation. The birth of Christ brings, brings glory to God and peace to mankind. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and God, may we sing with the angels. Holy Spirit, may you fill this room today and ignite our hearts and our minds not to just sing songs of the season, not to think about all the plans that have yet to come true, but to understand that all the hosts of heaven stepped out and said, look at this Christ the Savior has been born. Glory to God in the highest. And the result is peace. Peace to mankind. May we sing with the angels. And God, may we leave this place knowing your peace. And knowing that you are pleased with us. We pray this all in the name that is the saving name. The name that is exalted above every name. The name that brings glory to God in the highest the name of Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Would you stand where you're at, come forward and partake in